Welcome back to the podcast, episode number 39. Today's podcast is brought to you by Chef Notepad, where you can easily store and cost your recipes so you can focus on the food. And yes, I did read that, but it is really, really good. And there are loads of people using it, and it is a fantastic tool. Cost your recipes, store your recipes, and you'll be on track to be a good chef. Okay, today's podcast is Uday Huja. Okay, he is an absolute legend and he is from the star. He's up at 19, which is on top of the Darling, and he's doing some amazing food. He's got some stories from the Southern America, like their Southern food. He's got some cracking stories from down there, Vegas stories. He's cooked in some amazing places. Like he's cooked for some of the most famous people in the world, but he's a really humble guy and he's got a heap of great stories for us. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this one. Uday Hodges. No. <laughs> Uday Hoodja. 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 Okay, you ready? Uday. 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 Hoodja. Hoodja. Uday Hoodja. Love it. Uday Hoodja. Welcome to the broadcast. Thank you for being a part of this once again. I know you've done a few podcasts in your time. Um, <laughs> Uday is the executive chef at 19, the star, Gold Coast, Australia. I've known Uday for uh, about a couple of years, I guess, and we've had uh, lengthy chats over your wonderful career. Uh, and that's why I picked you, because I knew that people are going to be interested in your wonderful story. So we're at the top of uh, the Darling here, is it? Uh, the 19th floor, I assume. It's why it's yes. called the 19th. Correct. <laughs> Tell me what's going on at 19 right now. We're leading into Christmas. You're going to be busy as. What's going on? Yeah, we see with the uh, borders opening up and restrictions lessening, we've been able to increase our capacity um, from 46 to 80 per session. Um, and, you know, that's uh, we see that across the business in, in general. Um, a lot more people are coming in and feeling more comfortable and, uh, we're getting more and more trade and more and more inquiries. Obviously, the holiday season's always the crazy season for for restaurants, and I'm really we never needed it more than ever as far as the restaurant and hospitality industry to be busy. I hope it gets absolutely crazy for everybody. Mm. Yeah, you just won an award as well. Did I just see something get put on? No, we we did. We were honored um, with um, best hotel restaurant in Australia, New Zealand, and the South Pacific. Holy dooly. So, yeah, really awesome thing to be recognized. And uh, you know, there's so many great operators out there uh, to be singled out and um, get that recognition. I think it's a, great, it's a great piece for the restaurant, obviously, but it also gets us to give that chance to say thank you to all of our great team members that, that help us every day. I mean, I'm so lucky the team I have here at 19 is – completely passionate about what they do, the service to the guest. They take um, every day as a new day, and we, we really get going and hit the ground from zero and um, just try and do our best every day. So it's a great moment for us to be able to just recognize the team and say thank you very much. You spoke about them uh, a couple of weeks ago when we had a chat, and uh, you 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 were just really impressed with the with the with the guys in the kitchen in particular. Yeah. You spoke about them. Tell me tell me about those two boys. Yeah, uh, Mitch Tucker, yeah, I, Ben sure McShane. I'm sure there's twenty of them, but James Radke. There's so many of them that are in there, but um, these guys are you know a huge driving force for for uh, 19. Um, I think that we see 
Um, you know, I, I understand out front and I get a lot of credit and I'll take the hits also when there's, when there's um, bad news or whatever else. But um, I really could not do this without the support of great people like Mitch and Ben. And they're great culinarians, they're young chefs, they're top guns. And, you know, they come in with a great attitude to just do the best that they can do every day. They have that drive. And I think that that's what's needed. You know, you need a team around you that is people that are really ready to go, that are motivated, that have been through the fire and, and, and want to have the same goal as you. And that is to be the best that we can be every day. I always tell everybody, perfect is not my expectation, but 100% effort is. And that's where we need to get to. So as long as we put forth our best effort, as long as we really try and do everything that we can do, that's that's where I want to leave it. That's where I'll leave the chips on the chips on the floor, on the table, and and just go from there because that's all we can really ask for. And um, got to get the team to put the chips on the table up here. Okay? Chips on the table, so. not on the floor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you're doing brekkie too now. You've got your famous. Yeah, so call it, you call it a biscuit. We call it a scone thing going down. Yeah, it's, it's not like a scone. Fifty times yeah, better exactly. than a scone. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's not a scone. It's a biscuit. So Southern biscuit is. Um, Sort of traditional to where I'm from in Virginia in the south in Southern America, and um, it is like a scone in the sense that it is a baked product, a small cake, but it doesn't have any sugar in the dough, so it's more of a savory experience. Um, and I learned them 25 years ago. I, I trained as a young chef in Charleston, South Carolina, and um, when I was down there, um, my uh, my chef at Magnolias taught me how to make Southern biscuits and I've kept it with me my entire career. And I really haven't had that much opportunity to break them out in the past, but we started doing breakfast here at 19. Um, so seven days a week, we're open for breakfast from seven to 10. And, you know, it was seemed like the perfect opportunity because the American breakfast table starts out with biscuits in the South at least. And so I start out every table, every guest here with a biscuit. I talk with them a little bit about what it is, the fact that it's not a scone, and, it's uh, nearly breakfast already, but it's, uh, it's, it's pretty big. Yeah, breakfast has taken off. And uh, we're doing a brunch also, which is sort of, um, it's, it continues to kind of explode. And uh, that's sort of a mix between um, some of our egg dishes and also our steaks and oysters and our, some of our lunch items also that we do. All right, and yeah. then you can go and kind of chill out at the pool up here in the Darling. We take over the pool so you can have sort of like a Sunday, uh, Sunday pool session. Tell me more about that because I don't yeah. think enough people. After breakfast, you can go right it. into the pool at twelve thirty. The bar is open. You go over, get a cabana bed, lay back, chill out. And you don't have to be staying here to do that. Not on Sunday, you don't. Otherwise, it's private to the darling guest. Right. Okay. But uh, we've worked out a deal where Sunday it's uh, we take we do a takeover. That's good. And um, yeah, it's been really popular. It's a great way to like sort of transition from a great lunch or a brunch into a little afternoon uh, chill session up here on the 19th floor. Cracking. Yeah, it's a good deal. So this menu, I was lucky enough to come here just before COVID, and it had some cracking stuff on it. But one of the things that really interested Amanda and I was the oyster menu and how you had all the different oysters. Can you tell yeah. us about that? Because that was Yeah, we're doing something that I call an oyster journey. And what happens, we paired up with a great company, uh, Australia's Oyster Coast. And they're a co-op of farmers that... They have farms up and down the east coast of Australia. And basically, of their 20 estuaries that they have, they grade them 
um, all of them every week, and they choose their top three oysters based on condition, meat-to-shell ratio, so on and so forth, and those are their Appalachian oysters. And so what we do is we get those Appalachian oysters in, and we sort of are able to tell the story to our guest about um, the oyster and what the differences are. So we really call it the oyster journey because you really have a chance to taste oysters from different areas up and down the East Coast. Some are down, maybe it's Marimbula, maybe it's Wallace Lake, um, you know, so Wapinga, Waganga, so on and so forth. But the thing with oyster is, and I think a lot of people don't really think about it, is it's very much affected by its marine environment. So that's where we're sort of, for wine, they, you talk about terroir, it's grown on the north coast, there's the sea breeze, that affects the quality of the wine. Similarly with oysters, if you have an oyster that is an estuary that is um, fed from the ocean, you're going to have a more minerally um, taste flavor profile to that. Maybe if it's in a, in, in a lake on the backside, it's more affected by um, those conditions, which might be a creamier or sweeter, sweeter oyster, um, more umami flavor. Um, different different factors um, really affect that. So that's something that I think a lot of people don't think about. And their oyster experience consists of, I'd like some oysters. Would you like a half dozen or a dozen? Mm. You might get, someone might tell you, oh, they're from here or they're from there or mm. they're Sydney Rocks or they're Pacifics. But there's so much more to it. And I think that it's not about us giving you an education about everything and we want you to learn everything about oysters. If you're interested to learn about oysters, we can we can give you the insight on, you know what, this is an oyster that has a more mineral um, flavor profile. Maybe that's something you really like and maybe the guests go, you know what, I really don't like a minerally flavor profile. I really like a sweeter, creamier oyster. Okay, really, you know what, if you don't like that mineral aspect, don't go with Marimbula. Why don't you try Wallace Lake out? And then all of a sudden it becomes a discussion with them about, wow, I'm really getting some information that's going to affect my dining experience. And we love to be able to offer that opportunity for our guests to have a bit of a, um, education if they want. And if you want to just come in and enjoy oysters, you can just say, hey, you know what? I want a half dozen or a dozen oysters. And you're going to get the best oysters in, in, the, in Australia as far as we're concerned. So. What, what, that, that it was a really a good experience for me. I was really interested in it because I think a lot of time in life, uh, particularly uh, me, people think I probably know more than what I do. And, and um, you know, oysters is one thing that I was like grateful for the education of it. And um, yeah, if you if you come in here and you're interested, you know, make sure you check that out. What other things are super exciting? Because I know that there was a whole prolifera of beautiful things on the menu. But tell me a, cu- a couple of the favourites that are doing well. Right. Um, one of them is our southern crab cake. I think that um, that's also, like I said, I trained in uh, Charleston, South Carolina as a young chef. And uh, I learned about a southern crab cake there. And the American southern style crab cake is made with blue swimmer crab. And I do a combination of tarragon and shallot. And um, in my estimation, a great crab cake is all about crab meat. It's not about filler and all of this breading and everything else. So we keep it to um, mainly about the crab. Uh, it's just got a little bit of coating of breading on the outside that we just pan, pan saute it in a little bit of brown butter, serve it with a little bit of fresh tomato and a tomato fondue, a little bit of sweet cream corn, which is a traditional, you know, southern accompaniment. Um, that's sort of a little bit about my history. I want to be able to share that, those food experiences that I've had coming up and my American perspective, which is part of my brand. 
uh, and part of my history to share with the guests. So they get that experience and they get a chance to taste a real Southern crab cake. And that's what I can offer through my experience to our guests. Hey, it's a unique one. And this is something that's for you. What do you think the key differences are between um, American sort of fine dining and Australian fine dining? Well, I think that um, um, a lot of times um, when we think about it, when I think about American fine dining, I think that there's such a huge wide variety um, to sort of pull on. So that regional American cuisine is so diverse from state to state. It's so much different. There's so many different aspects because of all of the different influences that have happened um, in America, all the different immigrants that have been there. A lot of that has affected um, what are those influences the chefs are then bringing. And I think that what we find there and here in Australia in the best best places is you really have chefs, culinarians, hospitalitarians that are really letting you see a little bit about what is their experience. What is that, what is that food that um, is part of their heritage, part of their history? What is their twist on it? I think that what we really want to do here and our ethos here is um, great ingredients simply prepared with finesse. And I think that that finesse is maybe it's part of my experience. Maybe it's a experience that some of my uh, other chefs have had along their career. And we sort of bring that to bear on a great product. Uh, I'm not one for um, taking 40 ingredients and putting it on a plate or putting, I don't think you're going to taste that little pinch of nutmeg and as the 40th ingredient in a sauce. Mm. I think it's really about the dish has one main voice. That voice is that the natural attributes of that main ingredient. And then all the other accompanying accompaniments are supporting players. And they're there to help accentuate that beautiful natural aspect of that ingredient. And I always try and focus on that. And I think that for a lot of fine dining restaurants, when you see um, fine dining here, Australia, Europe, wherever, it's really about capturing that, um, that essence, that simplicity. I think simple is hard to do. Uh, it's easy to put 140 things on a dish. Um, but as you get more mature and you sort of understand what's going on with food, and um, I think that you are able to refine and distill that down. And that's really the great part about, uh, I think, what we do here. I think one of the challenges for uh, a tropical fruit that I was just up in Cairns last week is that it's so good by itself. Like a mango is a great example. or a pa- Like some of these things are just so good by themselves. I find the challenge is to try and make it, make it into something that people, you know, you know are, are going to do things you yeah. know, special with. So, Yeah, I mean, I think, I think that is a challenge. And I think you're right that really the, the thing that we want to do is just try and accentuate that beautiful, um, whether it's a textural component, uh, flavor component, uh, one of those natural attributes of that beautiful fruit, like a mango. Um, what do you pair it with? Um, you know, I think that that is, that is the challenge. And I think that it's really about the best thing you can really do is just use that product when it's seasonally at its top, at its best. Mangoes are in season right now. We have it on our menu with a, a coconut panna cotta. We do a little bit of a smoked uh, macadamia nut ice cream with it. It's delicious. And main reason is because mangoes are killing right now. They're just delicious. They're mm. amazing. So that's when it's time to use mangoes. 
Good. I'm glad you went in season. I know that we have regular chats about what's in season and um, I appreciate that because nothing worse than people eating food out of season or trying to work things that are, that are out of season. So tell me a little bit about your history. You grew up in America. Was it Charlottesville? Or, yeah, yeah, Charlottesville, Virginia. You're, um, you know, you are an Indian family. Uh, you are barbecuing. Tell me more about this beautiful, where all this stuff was born from, where these... Yeah. Where it comes from? Well, I think that there's a lot of, you know, anyone that you talk to from any different culture basically will tell you that they're the most food crazy culture, whether it's Italians or Greeks or French or Indians. And in my house, we were food crazy. And the discussion at breakfast was what's for dinner? And at dinner time, what's for breakfast? (laughs) And it was always just uh, amazing food culture. And so, yeah, I grew up in Virginia in the 70s. And uh, it's Charlottesville, Virginia is a small town. It's a historic town. It's the home of America's third president, Thomas Jefferson, and the University of Virginia. So it's a very historic town. And um, funnily enough, Thomas Jefferson, our third president, was uh, one of the first culinarians in American history, basically. He was the ambassador to France from the U.S. and brought a lot of amazing culinary techniques, recipes, and and things back with him to America. And, um, you know, Charlottesville, Virginia is a small little town. It's got like 50,000 people in it. Um, And it's about two hours from Washington, D.C. in the Blue Ridge Mountains, tiny little town. My dad went there as the city planner in 1972. Um, And I'm pretty sure we were the only Indian family in Charlottesville, Virginia. um, where I was raised Sikh, so I wore a turban. My dad wears a turban still. Um, and yeah, it was uh, inside my house was India and outside my house was 1970s uh, Southern America. And there was a lot of, uh, you know, it's quite a diverse experience. So in the food part of it, amazing experience and a lot of diversity. Um, like I said, at home, we were cooking a lot of Indian food. And, uh, but outside I was eating fried chicken and cornbread. And, um, you know, hanging out with my uh, American friends. Um, but we, I would say that initially we faced a lot of absolute racism yeah, um, yeah. and bigotry that comes with ignorance, basically. I mean, that's, it's all, it all comes from ignorance, basically, I think. I don't think that um, it's much more than that. Um, people are a bit scared of what they don't know and what they don't understand. And my dad was coming, came into that town. He's a very progressive, forward-thinking guy. And the first project he did was to dig up Main Street and put in a pedestrian mall, which was something they were doing in Barcelona and Paris and around the world in these major cities and uh, very cultured places, but not in Charlottesville, Virginia. And literally, they took out a full-page ad saying, Indian, go home. And, um, you know, our phone was tapped. Uh, We had, you know, numerous, numerous, just basically people just having a go at us because we were different. How did that make you, like, when you say that, you know, like, it's just, you know, people don't understand things and they're scared of what they don't know. Easy to say as an adult, as a kid, did that mess with you? Like, because when you're a kid, it's it's harder. Yeah, it was very difficult. Um, Actually, like I said, I wore a turban, and uh, basically every day someone would knock that turban off my head. And a turban is basically a cloth that you wrap your hair up in. Um, I didn't cut my hair, so I had a long hair, and it would wrap it around on a ball on top of my head. And then I'd put this turban on, and every day some kid thought it was a great joke to knock it off. 
So we'd had to have like my all my elementary school teachers like learn how to tie a turban so I could put my hair back up and and um it was very difficult and it was very challenging to be the only one that was different than everybody else sort of and um I think that that experience though drove me and built me into the person that I am and a person that is very accepting of other people of different stuff of something that is different I'm not, I don't look at it with fear and I don't look at it with a bit of suspicion. I look at it with, oh, that's something new. I want to explore about this. What is this going about? So I think that helped me be a more inquisitive person and a more accepting person in general in my life. And I think that that's an amazing, I guess, positive out of you know, racism that could come <laughs> yeah. out, out, of, out of this experience that <laughs> yeah, I Yeah, I was hoping you'd say that. And, you know, as horrible as racism is, um, and I hope people don't have to go through it, but, um, you know, yeah, usually, obviously, is always the person who's doing the picking on is, is, has got the problem. It's, 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 it's fear, isn't it? So, yeah, yeah and I, I, uh, you know, big multicultural country that Australia is, it's, uh, it's the perfect place to, 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 to live and, and love and learn about all these different wonderful cultures. Um, yeah, that must have been a great lesson. Yeah. Uh, so what, when did you start straight into cooking, straight off the school? You yeah. were barbecuing the whole life in the no, backyard. Yeah, actually, at our, and, at our right? house, like, that was part of the... Part of the road for us is that, so we, be, being Northern Indian, uh, we would um, um, have people over and invite people over and cook Indian food for them. And one of the dishes that we would cook would be tandoori chicken. And, you know, it's a very famous uh, Indian dish around the world. And, um, you know, it's chicken marinated in yogurt and spices, and you grill it in a tandoor oven or over a grill over a wood fire and um, at a really high heat. And I think that um, that was sort of a, acted like a bridge for us. Like people would come over in Virginia and they would come to our house for dinner and they were familiar with barbecue chicken, which Southern barbecue chicken is vinegar, tomato-based sauce, sugar, um, but they had never had tandoori chicken before, but it was sort of our barbecue chicken. So we would always serve that, introduce the people to that, and then they would be like, wow, this is great, I love it. And it was sort of like, that little bridge that we needed to get over the cultural boundaries. You got through them through them taste buds. Through food. And I think that when we think about that, food is a great way to investigate a culture, if not the best way. If you can understand so much about a culture, about a people, about people through their food, what is that food? It really deals with a lot about that. If you have like, you know, that food is influenced by who are the immigrants that have come through that area? What are the ingredients? What are the techniques? What are those different things that um, really have influenced that culture? And you're doing that now. Correct. <laughs> Isn't that funny that what you were doing in the backyard yeah. there is what you're actually doing yeah. now? So let's fill some gaps in between because you, I think we were just about to say how you weren't a chef straight away, were you? No, I wasn't. I was a um, science major in Temple University in Philadelphia. So I went to college in Philadelphia and uh, to pay for college, I worked my way. I was working in, the, in a restaurant. I was working at a TGI Fridays, which is like a chain restaurant kind of place. And um, But they had a really good program of where you could sort of do everything. So I was a waiter. I was a cook. I was a bartender. I was a food runner. I was a, you know, so I got a chance to see all of these different aspects of the hospitality industry while I was, you know, working to pay my way through school. And then I soon realized that 
I loved hospitality much more than science. <laughs> and it was way funner. The people were cool. You could come in a bit late, stay till two in the morning, party till five, sleep in, go into work at one o'clock, do it all over again. And I realized, okay, this is what I, this is my thing. I'm, <laughs> I'm going to do the hospitality thing. So I actually la- went and went to a culinary school in Charleston, South Carolina. And the day I walked in, I knew that I'd found my thing. From that day, I've never looked back. And it's just so lucky that some people never do, but I found what my passion was and was able to connect with it. And I've I've never looked back. I mean, I think that that's been amazing for me. It is a big global tribe, isn't it? It's like you're you're either in the tribe or you're sort of not. And and I think that a lot of people are scared to get into the, you know, like right now there's a bit of a shortage of chefs, you might say, in Australia. And and people are scared of it because, wait a minute, I want my weekends and what about this on the weekend and weekend and weekend? And is that that something that messes with with people or how do you you think people should approach that or deal with that? Well, I think it's an interesting thing when I came here to Australia that it's sort of hospitality is seen as a job that you have on your way to something else. Mm. Whereas in the rest of the world, in Europe and America, it's, it is a career. Mm. It is something that you follow and you go for and you do. And I think it's a little bit harder to be accepted here for some reason. Mm. Um, but um, I think that it's, a, it's an amazing pathway for many people. There's easier ways to make money. Like, so if you just want to make some money and do... You probably don't want to be a cook because it's hard manual labor. It's taught environments. It's a bit aggressive. It's a bit, you know, I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's a tough job. Ba- it's an opinion-based sort of thing. Yeah, it's a tough job and it's a tough life. And you're right. On Christmas, you're working. On your girlfriend's mother's birthday, you're working. Mm. On your girlfriend's birthday, you're working. On your birthday, you're working. Every holiday, you're working because that's when the restaurant's busy. Mm. And if that's not part of your thing that you're willing to sacrifice is to go down the road that it is to follow your passion, then, you know, you shouldn't be on that road. Um, so I always tell, I have a lot of parents come up to me and so how oh, my kid, they love master chef and they want to, I'm like, look, send your kid to law school, let him make some money <laughs> and pick up cooking on the side as a hobby when he's got plenty of money and everything else. And he can just, you know, get the best steaks and grill them outside of his uh, outside of his million dollar mansion, um, <laughs> and that would be a great life for him. But hey. if he is someone or she is someone that is really genuinely passionate about cooking, absolutely support that. Absolutely let them follow that passion because so many people walk around every day half dead, going to these jobs they don't like, and living for the weekend. Mm. And yeah, you have your weekend off. But you just wasted five days <laughs> in the middle of the week doing something you don't want to do, which yeah. is. When I left cooking, people say to me like, a few years later, like, oh, do you miss cooking? I say, I can still cook. Like, yeah. <laughs> it doesn't stop just because I don't do it for a job. Yeah, I mean, I think that that is, uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a passion thing. You have to, like you said, you're part of the tribe or you're not. You, you, you have to be part, cut from that cloth. Tell me what else you, uh, where did you go from there? You go to Vegas. What, what happened after that? Yeah. You went to some, tell me about Vegas. That's a weird Yeah, so I uh, went to culinary school and I went to England for a while. That's right. And um, worked for um, um, a chef uh, on the Isle of Wight. It was like a little place. Uh, it was a Michelin star restaurant and it had a brasserie and a little hotel. And um, went over there, spent some time there, did that. And that was a very intense kind of um, start to my career 
the intensity level in an English kitchen is legendary. It's very much um, you. For my chef, I had to be fully concentrated during service. Otherwise, there would be a pan flying across the room or you would be getting yelled at or you would be in fear of potentially some violence happening, which is, you know, it's not really a great, it doesn't sound like a great story to share, but that level of intensity, his passion for the food, his concentration, his absolute devotion to the thing that mattered most to him was this food that was going on a plate for his guest was an invaluable lesson. Um, I, I learned also in part of that process that that's not the chef that I want to be. I don't, I don't want, I want to have that passion for the ingredient, for the focus on service of the food to my guests, but not in that same methodology, which was yelling and have that, that sort of Gordon Ramsay-ish uh, um, type kitchen. And I knew that I didn't want to be that chef because I don't think that people respond to being yelled at and treated like crap and being uh, just abused. Um, and I don't think it's an effective way to teach someone or motivate someone at all. Hmm. And so I don't do that. And we don't, you know, you can't, you don't do that in modern day kitchens. Hmm. And uh, we don't do it in our kitchen here, certainly. Um, I've been through some kitchens where that was the thing, like I'm saying in England. Um, but, you know, there's intensity level and then there's just being a jerk. Hmm. And uh, They still uh, use that technique at the market where they abuse each other. Well, you know, I mean, I think that, you know, it's... It's still happening today out there in a lot of restaurants or whatever, but some people respond to it. I just don't believe in it. Yeah. I don't I don't think it is effective in any way. So you were in England. You learned that valuable lesson, which is a really good one. So you've had a couple of good lessons. You've had yeah. the, the, the cultural one, this one, and now you're in Vegas, and every good chef's heading there, and it's a place to be, and there's lights everywhere, and there's strippers here, and this and that, and shows mm. here, and it's trouble, and it's good. What is it? Well, yeah, I went I, when I got back from England, I had an opportunity to work at a great – um, restaurant in Virginia called the Inn at Little Washington. It's one of the most um, rewarded and regarded, highly regarded, highest rated restaurants in the world and in America for the past 25 years, 30 years by a chef named Patrick O'Connell. And he was the, that was probably one of the key critical moments in my career where he really taught me that a great restaurant isn't just about great food. It's about an complete dining experience. So when you arrive, from the time you arrive, to the time you come in, to the drink you have, to the seat you sit on, to the room you're in, to then you get the food, the service, the wine, the dessert, the kitchen tour, the, and then you end, three hours later, you've had this amazing experience above and beyond just the food. There was great food along the way, it has to be, but you had an experience. And that's really what we try and uh, what I've always sort of latched on from that, which is that food is not, dining shouldn't be transactional. It's not about you giving me money and me giving you food. There's got to be an experience that is there encompassing this night out. And then then you can really create something wonderful for someone. And that's where you start to really build a relationship with your guest um, and a relationship of trust. When you come in, you give them that amazing experience, that amazing service, that personalized touch, they go, oh, wow, you know what? I'm going to go back there because I know that I'm going to get this amazing service and uh, experience. And that's what I really learned there, which was so amazing. After that, I went to Las Vegas, like you said, because basically in America, there was two choices. You go to New York or you go to Vegas. 
It used to be that you would have to go through New York to go through those top restaurants to see what is everybody doing there. Those were the tough kitchens. Those were the top kitchens in the country. And then Vegas exploded with every chef, not only top chef in America was going there, every top chef in the world was going there. So as a young culinarian, I could go to Vegas and get the most exposure that I could have anywhere. So I could go see Joe Robichon, I could see Guy Savoy, I could see Bradley Ogden, I could see all of the top chefs. What were they doing? What was their restaurant? What was their food? What was the design? What was the serve? What? Like it was such an amazing time to be there to just absorb like a sponge. And that's exactly what I did. And um, so I had an amazing experience there in Vegas and worked there for seven years until um, I just I just basically had enough. Like I was completely um, probably, uh, I guess it's a term you use a little bit, probably too much, but it probably was on the edge of a burnout. Um, I had totally absorbed myself in uh, cooking in that world. And I just did my cooking, my kitchen, my going to and from my kitchen and home. And that was about all I was doing. And um, But that was, at that time in my life, I was a young chef and that's, I was obsessed with it. And that's what I was there to do. And that obsession led to amazing opportunities and amazing experiences for me mm. to come out of just being very selfish about me and my career and food and learning. Um, I wasn't married. I didn't have a girlfriend. I didn't, there was no distractions from it. It was me and my cooking and, um, you know, in an environment where there were so many great restaurants and so many great chefs. So I got a chance to, uh, just totally submerge in that for, for seven years. Um, along the way, um, I had a, a really cool experience where I had a chance to go cook at the White House. And uh, it, it was born from working. Are you in, reading my questions over here? I'm sorry. I the <laughs> uh, well, while I was there, so what happened basically is um, I, uh, a buddy of mine that I worked with at Little Washington was the executive sous chef at the White House, became the executive sous chef of the White House. And um, so Obama was just um, elected. He was having his first state dinner, and it was for the prime minister of India, Manwant Singh. And he called me up and said, hey, do you want to come down and help us out? And we're doing this dinner. I was like, are you kidding? I was like, yeah, I'll be there. No problem. I'm, I'm coming. And it could have been that I was the only Indian chef that maybe he knew. <laughs> um, but for whatever reason, I got the opportunity to go to the White House. And... That was absolutely amazing. That was, as a first-generation American, to follow my passion to the White House and cook food for representing America was the absolute pinnacle of, of my career. It's been something that when I discuss it or I talk about it, I still get chills thinking yeah, about that it. experience um, and that honor that it was to, to go to the White House and cook. Um, and um, there was a very famous American chef, Marcus Samuelson, that was there that was invited as a celebrity chef of this state dinner. And I was there helping with um, the food. And uh, actually the chef there, Cresteta Comerford, um, who's an amazing, amazing chef, um, basically said, look, we're doing the canapes and the party before the state dinner. And it's going to be in the White House. And it's going to be, you're going to set up in the old family dining room and serve these canapes and stuff like that. So why don't you run with it a little bit on some of your Indian influence? We'd like some Indian influence stuff. And I've got some ideas and here's what I'm thinking and you run with it. And 
amazingly, she gave me this amazing freedom to like have some input into what was going to be served at the White House. And so um, I ran with that. And um, we uh, we set up and uh, we're standing there. We're standing up there in the old family dining room, which was on the first floor of the White House. The second floor is now the residences of the president and the first family. And um, so we're standing down there and, you know, the um, portrait of Lincoln is on the right. And, it's, you know, you're in this historic building. It's amazing. And all of a sudden we can see through the doorway, like the elevator coming down. The elevator doors open. Barack and Michelle Obama were walking out. I was like, oh, my God, this is amazing. And Michelle Obama was wearing this like incredible golden dress done by some Indian designer and um, just was, she was stunning. And everyone was sort of around them. Like it was like staff, like getting them ready to go out there. And uh, so we were like, oh, stop staring, get back to work, stay focused. We put our heads back down. We're getting ready, we're plating up. And then bang, the president walks in the door and was like, hey everybody, how's it going? It's like, oh my God. Uh, and I almost fell down. I was shell shocked. And I'd worked in Vegas. I'd seen a lot of celebrities and I'd seen a lot of rich and famous people. I'd never, nothing had ever had that effect on me. So he was so cool. He was, thank you so much for coming in and we really appreciate you. And we were like, Pfft. you know, I was totally shell shocked. So I couldn't even speak for, for the first moment. <laughs> and then. Uh, one of my buddies that I was with was like, good evening, Mr. President. And I was like, I snapped out of it. I was like, good evening, Mr. President. Thank you so much. And of course, it's our honor. And But he was so humbly thanking a couple of cooks <laughs> in the White House. You know, he is, you know, the most He's powerful the man in the world. Yeah. But had the humility to come and thank some cooks. Yeah. Another and great lesson. It's amazing. Yeah. I mean, this guy was the feeling in America at that time with Barack as the president was, it was, I, I can only guess it was something like when the Kennedys came in for those people that were alive in the 60s. For, for me, it was amazing. It was the, the culinary pinnacle of my career to that point. And, um, and it's just something that I was so proud to be a part of. And, you know, culinary hospitality is the backstage pass to an amazing life. You are at the back door of every major event, whether it's the Oscars, the Arias, whatever it is, you're the cooks are coming in the back door. Yeah, we're in. Yeah, um, we don't need to worry about getting a VIP pass. We're there at the biggest events, and um, it's just can be an incredible life. Yeah, I can't ask you who's the most famous or wonderful person because obviously, who's the second most famous person you've actually had the pleasure of working with, um, or seeing, or cooking for? Man, well. Uh, we've, I've cooked for a couple of prime ministers and a couple of, uh, while I was, uh, here in Australia. And then, um, we've had, um, we've had a couple of Saudi princes in Vegas and, um, superstars, Barbara Streisand and people like that. So, yeah. Um, amazing group of people that, uh, you got a chance to cook for and meet and, you know, some of them are so absolutely brilliantly nice. Awesome. So you've had this amazing experience so far. You've started off in, in your hometown. You've gone to England. You've done a heap of Vegas. You've got all this experience. You've been working your butt off. Did That's when you decided that Australia was a good option? How, how did we get out of here? How did we get you, to you, Australia? You, became, yeah. you were the head gig here, weren't you? Yeah, I was, I was hired to come here and be the executive chef and take over 
um, Jupiter is what it was, yeah. um, as the executive chef, because we were going to go through this amazing rebuild that we've done over these last years. Um, I left Vegas actually and went to Texas, to far oh, west Texas, right. yeah. Marfa, Texas. Um, a buddy of mine that I had worked with at Little Washington, a different buddy, um, was living in Marfa, Texas, which was like 30 minutes from uh, the Mexican border. It was in the desert, the high plains desert of Texas and far west Texas. And it was a town, it was like an artist community, a very famous minimalist contemporary artist named Donald Judd moved there and uh, started doing this art installation. And as a result of that, it became a mecca for people that were free thinkers and artists that would go there in the middle of far west Texas and start to just do their own thing. So you're like a burnout Worked too hard, Vegas, yeah. left and got on the road, the driving through the driving through the desert. I can imagine that it was the roof down, or was the window open? Of uh, man, uh, it was crazy. It was completely <laughs> you pulled opposite. Up a, and you went to you opened a thing at um, it's like a diner or something, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. It was in a gas station, and it was uh, <laughs> it was an old gas station, basically a convenience uh, store. I'm glad we didn't that skip we this. turned into. A chicken shop. It was called Miniature Rooster. <laughs> that was is the that name on of your the resume? Restaurant. That's the name of the restaurant. Miniature Rooster is on my resume. Um, and I refer to it as my PhD. So I had, like you said, I had been in top restaurants, Five Star, Five Diamond, Vegas, England, Michelin Star, all of this stuff. Worked for all these guys. Now it was sort of like, all right, can you do it or can't you do it? You open your own business. What are you going to do? So we went out and, like I said, far west Texas, there's no jobs out there. You have to create your own job. So we found this building, we rented it, we painted it, we turned it into a restaurant. I think we spent like 20,000 bucks and we, that was it. Like we started a restaurant on Um, (laughs) $20,000. These days it's the combi steamer. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. That would be one piece of equipment, you know what I mean? So we we started this restaurant up and um, like I said, Far West Texas, the only people that were out there were cowboys and cows. <laughs> that was it. And so, um, what do you cook beef? <laughs> so, there, you know what I mean? Like, these cowboys are in the big Ford F 350 giant trucks, you know, huge ranches, you know, not as big as Australia, actually, come to realize now, but huge ranchers and ranches. And we started the restaurant up, and it was Southern food and Indian food. And not a combination fusion. It was fried chicken and waffles, cornbread, collard greens, black eyed peas, um, and like chole puri, tandoori chicken was on the menu. Um, what grit, grits? Grits, shrimp and grits. What is grits? Tell me about grits quickly. Grits are, grits are dried corn, and they're sometimes they're treated with lye and they become hominy grits you kind of um, peel out the outer sort of shell and then dry them and grind them. So it's like polenta, but not really. It's not polenta. Um, It's very hard to get grits here. I actually had uh, some buddies of mine uh, ship me some from Charleston um, to come to Australia and to get them here. And um, I got a letter from the customs department very nicely saying that we've destroyed your package. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so you can't get them you know australia is so strict on their border and security and everything else so uh, can't get it here i'm actually working with someone now to try and develop them here because i've realized 
I need grits in my life, and I, yeah. I'm going to have to. Well, that was. I was I'm going to have to create it here. Yeah, I'm yeah, going to yeah. have to do it. I'm yeah, going to yeah. have to go. Just like you had to make a business there. Yeah, exactly. So so, lots of American stuff on the menu and Indian. And Indian. And then so these farmer, these ranchers just didn't know what the hell to think. What were these? What were we doing? Came in and fried chicken and waffles was a hit. Indian food was a hit. And there was no place. There was no no place like that in, in Texas, first of all. But um, there was no no food like that in that town. And uh we did this. We, I did. We did this for almost a year and a half or two years, and really, it was a great life. I lived there. I had enough money to live and everything. I wasn't going to get rich off that or anything. But I had a great life. I was decompressed from pressure cooker Vegas. I started to get back my focus and get back my groove, and um, that's when I got a call from my former boss uh, from Vegas who had taken over the Star Gold Coast or the Jupiters at that time. He said, hey, what do you think about coming to Australia? And I was like, let's do that. I want to check that out. And I, <laughs> and I thought, he knew Did I you answer straight away? I gave him answer straight away. <laughs> and I said, when do you want me there? And he said, 30 days. And I said, I've got a business here that I need to shut down, turn over. I'll be there in else. 15 days. And I was, like, I was like, if you can get me through the process and visas and everything else, I'll see you in 30 days. And we did. And uh, so I ended up leaving Texas and um, came to Australia. And I was just planning on just doing an international stint. I had no, never thought about staying in Australia forever. But um, I came to Australia and fell in love with Australia. Came to the Gold Coast and um, just fell in love with Australia and knew I was never leaving. And so I did this job as executive chef of the Gold Coast for two years and then went to Sydney and took over the Star Sydney uh, as executive chef and then became culinary director there. And they had just gone through like a billion dollar rebuild of all of their brand and product. And so that was a really exciting time to be at the flagship of the group and their, you know, their new baby and just kind of drive and develop and make that come to fruition. I did that for six years and then ended up coming back to the Gold Coast because uh, my girlfriend was down here, and I developed a relationship with her. And the next move was for me to come back to the Gold Coast, and that's what I did. So I went to the company and said, "Look, I got to go to the Gold Coast." And they said, "Great, we've got a job for you down there." And I was like, "Fantastic, let's go!" And came down here and um, was in, did a um, sort of a projects uh, culinary projects director role for a little while, and then had the opportunity to take over nineteen, and. Uh, been doing this for the last year and a few months, year and three months maybe, and it's been an amazing experience. It's been awesome. So you've been here eight years. You married a beautiful Australian woman. Correct. You got a couple of dogs. What are the dogs' names? Everyone needs Chibati to know. Chapati and Dimmy. <laughs> you can find us on Miami <laughs> Beach every morning walking along. Um, we have this wonderful life. Uh, you know, I'm living this wonderful Australian life. And like I said, people when I go back to America, people always ask me, "Are you coming back?" I'm like, "No." <laughs> not coming back um and you know i became a citizen and yeah i'm never leaving australia love it beautiful yeah what else do you love about australia uh, i gotta ask you a couple of standard questions yeah. i ask everyone what's your favorite little place to get a little takeaway on the goldie um the takeaway on the goldie i'd probably say that i've been going down to um I've been heading down to Burley right right by uh, Light Years oh, yeah. and um, 
and um, I guess it's Margarita Cartel, something like that. Nice. Right down in that area down there. I like to go down there and just chill out. And um, But I've got my little local spots um, right in Miami where I go to, and there's a little Indian restaurant called Indian Delights. It's like in a tiny little strip mall. They're not a famous place or not anything. They're the best ones. They're the ones I'm looking for. And Indian Delights, you go check it out. Um, and uh, that's my local curry place. And I go down there and get a curry and just sit down and have a Kingfisher beer and chill out with the dogs and just kind of hang out. So. Uh, there's so many great restaurants in in the Gold Coast that, uh, that I go visit around and I go go around to. So there's, you know, I think that from when the time I left six years ago to the time I came back, it's been a huge explosion of great operators and great food. There's so many good places now. Yeah, well, who are some of the best ones that you, you recommend? Well, I think, that, I think that I really enjoy Rick Shores. I really enjoy... Um, like I said, light years. Uh, I th- always looking out for the new places. Uh, Iku. Um, so those are some of the places that I really mm. love, and I really think do a really great job. Well, you're absolutely, uh, you know, a, a, le- a living legend. I would call you, and that's not blowing smoke up your ass because you've, you've lived a really a hard life at the beginning. You know, you've learned some really good lessons, and I think anyone that gets to work with you or under you, you know, is, is privileged because you do you have this um, thing with you. And and when I first met you, uh, I think one of the dudes from Fino introduced me, and I was like, I wasn't even sure who you were at the time, and and, um, and I met you here actually at nineteen, and um, it was like you got to meet you there. And I was like slightly intimidated, but within seconds you made me feel really relaxed and really comfortable. And then we ended up talking for ages. I remember. Yeah. And, um, so anyone I guess to work with you is pretty lucky. And, um, yeah, I think I got lots of valuable lessons to learn. I think everyone was going to really enjoy this podcast. So thank you for being a part of it the second time. And, um, <laughs> you got it. Thank you very much. And, you know, I really have enjoyed all of the podcasts. And I think that it's something that is a really cool thing to be a part of. And, you know, I hope that people out there that are listening or whatever get a chance to really soak in all these different experiences from all these great chefs and people that you're talking with. I think it's a really great way to just sort of expand your boundaries. Yeah, Suncoast, very privileged to, to work with the star. And uh, we think that Queensland is going to be a destination of the future. And it's proved itself to be one of the safest places in the world mm-hmm. recently. So I think that people can, you know, when we reopen the borders, can travel here with confidence and, and know that, you know, it'll be okay. Yes, I agree. Come to Queensland. That's it. Come to Queensland. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much, Uday. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thanks for being a part of the broadcast. Thank you, Graham.